Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. By the end of January, every year, with the exception of inaugural years, the president fulfills his or her constitutional duty to give to the Congress information on the State of the Union, Article 2, Section 3 from the Constitution. So yes, today's podcast will focus on the infamous State of the Union address, which generally includes reports on the nation's budget, the economy, various news items, agenda progress, achievements, and the president's priorities and legislative proposals. Because of those many diverse topics necessary, several people work on this address. Of course, the economists and budget experts handle their portion. The diplomatic and national security staff meet with the president to create their portion, etc. Historically, Presidents George Washington and John Adams delivered their messages in person. But who was the first president to chose to send it in writing? That would be Thomas Jefferson in 1801. And that president held until Woodrow Wilson decided to deliver his message in person in 1913, a tradition that continues today. Franklin Roosevelt was the first to refer to it as the State of the Union Address, a title that became official during the Harry Truman administration. Originally, it was called the President's Annual Message to Congress. Now, when do you think the first national radio broadcast of the message occurred? Well, that would be in 1923 with President Calvin Coolidge. Yeah, Silent Cal actually took to the radio waves. So, When was the first State of the Union address televised? Can you guess? Well, that would be Harry Truman's in 1947. And who was the fellow who took it to prime time in 1965? That was President Lyndon Johnson. Oh, and that uh, opposition party speech we all watch in amazement at the end? When do you think that began? That was in 1966, the opposition party began offering a televised response to the president's speech a tradition that has continued to today. And maybe you didn't know this, but each year, one member of the president's cabinet is absent from the address to maintain the line of succession in case of an emergency. President often escaped to Camp David or the ranch to work on his State of the Union address, and uh, this is how he described it. My fellow Americans, in three days, I'll be going up to the Capitol to fulfill my responsibility of reporting to the Congress on the State of the Union. So I'm spending this weekend finishing up some last-minute work on my speech, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and taking time to look back and to reflect on the days and months ahead. A piece of history trivia for you. After Washington and Adams, Thomas Jefferson discontinued the practice of delivering an annual State of the Union address. He began a long custom of delivering written messages. It wasn't until 1913 that President Woodrow Wilson returned to the House chamber to deliver a speech. Wilson felt a president could do a better job reading his message than a clerk could. He said, I'm very glad to have this opportunity to address the two houses directly and to verify for myself that the president is a person, not a mere department of the government, hailing Congress from some isolated island of jealous power. 
that he is a human being trying to cooperate with other human beings in a common service. Cooperate in a common service. I guess that pretty much says it all. In each address, I've been mindful of one unchanging fact. I may be a Republican president and be mighty proud of it, but I need the help of Republicans and Democrats in the Congress if we're going to solve the serious problems confronting our nation. I think back to 1981, to the terrible economy, the inflation and interest rates, the sense that both home and abroad, everything had gone haywire and was slipping out of control. And I remember the first thing I did was to ask the Congress to pass an economic recovery program, one that would not be my program, but our program. By our, I meant not just those of us who serve here in Washington, but we, the American people. And so it was. So what about the Supreme Court justices? Are they required to attend or to leave one behind? The answer is no. There are no requirements pertaining to their attendance. In fact, they often do not attend. Justice Scalia missed over 20 in a row because he believed the speech was a, quote, childish spectacle. Justice Clarence Thomas said he doesn't attend the annual event because it has become so partisan that it's very uncomfortable for a judge to sit there. And according to Chief Justice John Roberts, he described the address as a political pep rally, but he still attends nonetheless. Let's go back 40 years and listen to the president begin delivering his State of the Union address and his reminder to the American people that less government is, well, of course, better government. Let's listen as only he can say it. Once again, in keeping with time-honored tradition, I have come to report to you on the State of the Union. And I'm pleased to report that America is much improved. And there's good reason to believe that improvement will continue through the days to come. You and I have had some honest and open differences in the year past, but they didn't keep us from joining hands in bipartisan cooperation to stop a long decline that had drained this nation's spirit and eroded its health. There is renewed energy and optimism throughout the land. America is back, standing tall, looking to the 80s with courage, confidence, and hope. The problems we're overcoming are not the heritage of one person, party, or even one generation. It's just the tendency of government to grow, for practices and programs to become the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on this earth. And there's always that well-intentioned chorus of voices saying, with a little more power and a little more money, we could do so much for the people. For a time, we forgot the American dream isn't one of making government bigger. It's keeping faith with the mighty spirit of free people under God. As we came to the decade of the 80s, we faced the worst crisis in our post-war history. In the 70s, were years of rising problems and falling confidence. There was a feeling government had grown beyond the consent of the governed. Families felt helpless in the face of mounting inflation and the indignity of taxes that reduced reward for hard work, thrift, and risk-taking. All this 
was overlaid by an ever-growing web of rules and regulations. On the international scene, we had an uncomfortable feeling that we'd lost the respect of friend and foe. Some questioned whether we had the will to defend peace and freedom. But America is too great for small dreams. There was a hunger in the land for a spiritual revival, if, if you will, a crusade for renewal. The American people said, let us look to the future with confidence, both at home and abroad. Let us give freedom a chance. Americans were ready to make a new beginning. And together, we have done it. We're confronting our problems one by one. Hope is alive tonight for millions of young families and senior citizens set free from unfair tax increases and crushing inflation. Inflation has been beaten down from 12.4 to 3.2 percent, and that's a great victory for all the people. Crime rate has been cut almost in half, and we must work together to bring it down even more. Together, we passed the first across-the-board tax reduction for everyone since the Kennedy tax cuts. Next year, tax rates will be indexed, so inflation can't push people into higher brackets when they get cost-of-living pay raises. Government must never again use inflation to profit at the people's expense. More from the President's third inaugural address right after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the President's address. While working with Congress was never easy, he did work diligently to reach across the aisle. Let's listen. The heart of America is strong. It's good and true. The cynics were wrong. America never was a sick society. We're seeing rededication to bedrock values of faith, family, work, neighborhood, peace, and freedom. Values that help bring us together as one people, from the youngest child to the most senior citizen. The Congress deserves America's thanks for helping us restore pride and credibility to our military. And I hope that you're as proud as I am of the young men and women in uniform who have volunteered to man the ramparts in defense of freedom and whose dedication, valor, and skill increases so much our chance of living in a world at peace. People everywhere hunger for peace and a better life. The tide of the future is a 
a freedom tide, and our struggle for democracy cannot and will not be denied. This, this, this nation champions peace that enshrines liberty, democratic rights, and dignity for every individual. America's new strength, confidence, and purpose are carrying hope and opportunity far from our shores. A world economic recovery is underway. It began here. We've journeyed far, but we have much farther to go. Franklin Roosevelt told us 50 years ago this month, civilization cannot go back. Civilization must not stand still. We have undertaken new methods. It is our task to perfect, to improve, to alter when necessary, but in all cases, to go forward. It is It's time to move forward again. Time for America to take freedom's next step. Let us unite tonight behind four great goals to keep America free, secure, and at peace in the 80s together. We can ensure steady economic growth. We can develop America's next frontier. We can strengthen our traditional values. And we can build a meaningful peace to protect our loved ones and this shining star of faith that has guided millions from tyranny to the safe harbor of freedom, progress, and hope. Doing these things will open wider the gates of opportunity, provide greater security for all with no barriers of bigotry or discrimination. At this point, the president goes into great detail regarding every angle he has attacked to improve the economy by reducing taxes stabilizing the monetary supply, deregulating, and his eternal challenge, reducing government spending. So we're going to pass by that section and get to freedom, strength, and the Soviet Union. Let's listen. A society bursting with opportunities, reaching for its future with confidence, sustained by faith, fair play, and a conviction that good and courageous people will flourish when they're free, these are the secrets of a strong and prosperous America at peace with itself and the world. A lasting and meaningful peace is our fourth great goal. It is our highest aspiration. And our record is clear. Americans resort to force only when we must. We have never been aggressors. We have always struggled to defend freedom and democracy. We have no territorial ambitions. We occupy no countries. We build no walls to lock people in. Americans build the future, and our vision of a better life for farmers, merchants, and working people from the Americas to Asia begins with a simple premise. The future is best decided by ballots, not bullets. Governments which rest upon the consent of the governed do not wage war on their neighbors. Only when people are given a personal stake in deciding their own destiny, benefiting from their own risks, do they create societies that are prosperous, progressive, and free. Tonight, it is democracies that offer hope by feeding the hungry, prolonging life, and eliminating drudgery. When it comes to keeping America strong, free, and at peace, there should be no Republicans or Democrats, just patriotic Americans. We can decide the tough issues not by who is right, but by what is right. 
Together, we can continue to advance our agenda for peace. We can establish a more stable basis for peaceful relations with the Soviet Union, strengthen allied relations across the board, achieve real and equitable reductions in the levels of nuclear arms, reinforce our peacemaking efforts in the Middle East, Central America, and Southern Africa, insist or assist developing countries, particularly our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere, and assist in the development of democratic institutions throughout the world. And I think we should close today with one of the most beautiful passages from our 40th president's pen. Let's listen. Tonight, I want to speak to the people of the Soviet Union, to tell them it's true that our governments have had serious differences, but our sons and daughters have never fought each other in war. And if we Americans have our way, they never will. People of the Soviet Union, there is only one sane policy for your country and mine, to pres preserve our civilization in this modern age. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. value in our two nations possessing nuclear weapons is to make sure they will never be used. But then, would it not be better to do away with them entirely? People of the Soviet, President Dwight Eisenhower, who fought by your side in World War II, said the essential struggle is not merely man against man or nation against nation. It is man against war. Americans are people of peace. If your government wants peace, there will be peace. We can come together in faith and friendship to build a safer and far better world for our children and our children's children. And the whole world will rejoice. That is my message to you. Someday, some days when life seems hard and we reach out for values to sustain us or a friend to help us, we find a person who reminds us what it means to be Americans. Sergeant Stephen Trujillo a medic in the 2nd Ranger Battalion, 75th Infantry, was in the first helicopter to land at the compound held by Cuban forces in Grenada. He saw three other helicopters crash. Despite the imminent explosion of the burning aircraft, he never hesitated. He ran across 25 yards of open terrain through enemy fire to rescue wounded soldiers. He directed two other medics, administered first aid, and returned again and again to the crash site to carry his wounded friends to safety. Sergeant Trahil, 
you and your fellow servicemen and women not only saved innocent lives, you set a nation free. You inspire us as a force for freedom, not for despotism, and yes, for peace, not conquest. God bless you. And then there are unsung heroes, single parents, couples, church and civic volunteers. Their hearts carry without complaint the pains of family and community problems. They, they soothe our sorrow, heal our wounds, calm our fears, and share our joy. A person like Father Ritter is always there. His Covenant House programs in New York and Houston provide shelter and help to thousands of frightened and abused children each year. The same is true of Dr. Charles Carson. Paralyzed in a plane crash, he still believed nothing is impossible. Today in Minnesota, he works 80 hours a week without pay, helping pioneer the field of computer-controlled walking. He has given hope to 500,000 paralyzed Americans that someday they may walk again. Can we, how can we not believe in the greatness of America? How can we not do what is right and needed to preserve this last best hope of man on earth? After all our struggles to restore America, to revive confidence in our country, hope for our future, after all our hard-won victories earned through the patience and courage of every citizen, we cannot, must not, and will not turn back. We will finish our job. How could we do less? We're Americans. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast, featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.